Welcome to the Kicks EAP podcast, your monthly podcast with important leaders in education from Eastern Europe, Middle East and North Africa, Central Asia, and the Asia Pacific. I'm your host, Ryan Allen, assistant professor at Chapman University here in Southern California, and my own background is in international and comparative education. Let's start the show. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Sajid Ali, who is the Amir Sultan Chinoy Associate Professor at the Aga Khan University's Institute for Educational Development in Pakistan. In our conversation, we talk about his educational journey, then we get into his research and the Institute, and we close with a critical reflection on international development work in the country. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Sajid, thank you for joining me today. It, it's it's nice to to finally get to sit down with you here. Going through your your CV, it, it just it's really interesting to kind of see your background. And I and I'm curious how, how you got into education because I see here that you actually started in uh, journalism, or you did you did a BA in uh, journalism at the University of Karachi. So so can you maybe talk a little bit about like sort of moving over from maybe uh, journalism or communications into education. And I know you also went abroad as well. So uh, maybe some of those choices as well. Interestingly, uh, if you go even uh, downwards uh, in my CV, uh, I started uh, like my high school inclination and subjects were physics, chemistry, maths. So I was aiming to go into engineering um, uh, fields or computer software or those kinds of things. But uh, eventually, I ended up uh, pursuing social sciences, and in the bachelor's, I had three options, and communication and journalism was one of them, but I also had uh, a major in sociology at that time. Um, so, And then in my master's from Karachi University, I pursued my master's in sociology. Now, from that to the journey in education, was a result of my early experience, employment experience with Alkhan University's Institute for Educational Development, where I'm currently working. Um, so one of my professors was working in, in, uh, on, a, on a research project with this institute from sociology, and it was kind of a social educational uh, linkages uh, that were there. Um, that brought me uh, exp- uh, to this institute. I was exposed to the field of education and eventually but I think I would rather call myself sociologist of education because I didn't pursue um, my um, interest in the pedagogy of uh, uh, in the pedagogy or, or in teaching this subject or that subject. I was more curious on the issues of policy, on the issues of educational leadership, uh, what affects education system as whole. So, uh, so that's how I find the link between my early. Uh, uh, qualifications and the field of education. And as I got interested into that, um, I pursued my further education. So I did a master's in education from Monash. And if you could see that master's was also in the uh, education policy and leadership. Um, and then eventually I pursued my PhD from University of Edinburgh. In the- yeah, that, that, I'm curious about the, those choices. So you, 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 know, you do a degree in sociology in Australia. And then you and then you move to the uh, University of Edinburgh uh, for for your PhD. Can, can you maybe talk a little bit about? I think one one issue that scholars often face when they do a degree abroad is either you know stay in in that country the the, the host country or 
or go back uh, to, you know, to, to home country. And, and I'm kind of curious about that experience and, and just what, what went into thinking there. Very interesting question, actually. <laughs> uh, and probably that uh, is a question that uh, people uh, more so from the South, Southern countries, because this uh, face then probably people from Northern countries or, or the developed country for that matter, because the opportunities are similar. So if you talk about opportunities between USA, Australia, UK, or European countries, probably they are they are similar with some variation. But if you look at the prospects of uh, scholars in the South or underdeveloped countries, and the prospects in the, for example, Australia, USA, it's it's huge difference. Um, so not only me, I guess uh, anybody who is traveling from the South to the North or underdeveloped or less developed to a developed context, get qualification, get exposed to that culture and find their feet, confront this question. Uh, where to stay, where to pursue. And I think I probably resolved this question very early uh, uh, because I wanted uh, the focus and concentration. I thought, um, uh, uh, and I still remember confronting this question. I thought uh, probably uh, the the kind of things that I'm getting exposed to myself, my scholarship, um, the field, and everything uh, would probably be useful for the context, to say UK or Australia, but more so for the context of Pakistan, uh, where I grew up, where I think uh, what I can contribute is is more significant. I can. And I can go back to that context and try and, and talk to more of my students, do more scholarship. I think it was the sense of contribution that I felt towards uh, the host, uh, towards my uh, um, country of birth, uh, that I always thought of returning and I always plan to return. And if you look at my master's thesis, uh, because uh, that, um, Choice determines your choice of topic, your choice of uh, field of scholarship. So if you see my master's from uh, Australia or the PhD from uh, Edinburgh, both of these uh, research is focused mainly in, in, uh, on education policy in Pakistan. Um, and so I was very clear uh, from the choice of my topic that I would be returning because um, in Edinburgh, if I had to pursue my career, uh, people would be asking that, well, look, your PhD thesis would be great for Pakistan, but uh, what lessons can you draw from here to the work in Edinburgh? Uh, those were some of the thoughts. Um, and uh, apart from that, I'm a family person. I always thought of returning to my family. Um, and so it was that kind of a uh, thinking at that time. Um, and I think I'm not regretting it. It's been like... Uh, uh, 20 years since Australia and probably 12 years since Edinburgh. So I'm okay. But always nice to, to, to go to those contexts just to get more stimulated. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really appreciate sort of diving into that question and, and really interrogating, you know, who, who has to make that choice or who's sort of confronted with those, with those issues and, and can definitely appreciate sort of making decisions based on, on family and, and these other connections. So um, thank, thank you for getting into that. 
If we could, I, I, I would like to talk about your, your current position. Can, can you talk a little bit about the uh, Institute of, of Education uh, Development at uh, Aga Khan University? And, and you, I, I noticed you teach a lot of research methodology and uh, you have a lot of doc students. So can you, can you kind of talk about uh, your role there and, and maybe who, who are your students uh, and, and maybe what, what do they go on, on to do? Thank you very much for bringing the Institute and probably connected to the previous uh, question about returning. I think the Institute itself played a very vital role uh, in uh, helping me to make that decision because uh, I was facilitated by my Institute a lot. So anytime, whether I go to Australia or UK, the Institute allowed me long leaves, uh, which is rare um, in, in our context, uh, apart from uh, public sector universities, because public sector universities generally have more flexible approaches, more possibilities of giving long leaves. But private sector universities are not very good at that kind of a thing. So I should appreciate my, my university and my institute for allowing me to do that. And I think introducing uh, what I do in the institute, let me first introduce or at least briefly give you the context of the institute, what this institute is generally about, as I understand, because probably the... Um, um, I started my career as a research assistant, but uh, uh, between 2019 and 21, for two years, I was also the interim dean of the institute. So I actually started my career and ended up heading the, 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 the institute itself. Um, currently, I am the associate professor, as I told you. I've got the endowed professorship, Amir Sudhan Chinoy uh, professorship. Uh, um, which is uh, a high privilege uh, within the context of the institute. Uh, only three of the faculty has endowed professorship. Uh, I'm pursuing towards professorship, but I'm still not there. Uh, I still have to do a little more work. Uh, uh, I, apart from the, my teaching and research, uh, I'm also heading the research portfolio, so I'm the director of research here. Um, um, and uh, prior to that, I was uh, the interim dean. Um, so I've done uh, lots of uh, these roles as well, heading the research, heading the graduate programs portfolio, heading the PhD doctoral portfolio. Um, and uh, so th those are the kinds of things that are there. Uh, in my teaching scholarship research role, um, my area um, where I generally uh, pursue my research are um, what uh, we generally describe as comparative international education as a, as a broad field. Uh, and I generally draw on the issues of globalization, educational governance. Um, so when I look at governance, I generally look at either policy implementation, I look at policy formulation, I look at public-private partnerships. Uh, when we look at globalization, I, I generally look at uh, how, for example, donors or consultants or all these development partners affect the national education policy formulation, which was also one of the focus of my PhD research. Um, I also look at the, the leadership um, uh, and, and management issues within the school community, school context, and how, for example, uh, leadership affects uh, the school dynamics. Uh, currently, I'm, I'm uh, working with around 10 head teachers to offer a workshop for COVID and how the COVID affected um, the educational context, the schooling context, and the lessons learned from them and uh, allowing those lessons to be transferred to other people. 
in terms of my teaching, I and so my teaching also revolves around these areas: education policy, policy implementation, and and those. Um, my research currently, I am pursuing quite a lot of interest in the area of teacher licensing, teaching license, uh, and uh, I engage a lot with the ministries, with the policy network around. Um, and hopefully next month, June, we will be launching a white paper on uh, teaching license in Pakistan after a lot of policy, advocacy, policy dialogues, work, research, synthesis of all of those things uh, over a period of year. I've looked at uh, the issues related to policy implementation. My current uh, paper in CIS, uh, Comparative International Education Society Conference, was on policy implementation. Um, and how, for example, this uh, short-term, short-sighted uh, project-based implementation um, creates disruptions rather than continuation and, and, and affects more negatively than positively because of that time bar, because of the pressures of the donors to deliver in time. Um, those are the kinds of things. I supervise a lot of the students. We offer master, the, the Institute offer masters in education and, MPhil in education and PhD in education. And it's probably the best institute uh, or faculty of education in Pakistan, uh, for sure. Um, the university itself, if you look at our university, it's spread over a number of different countries. So it's in Uganda, Tanzania, Kenya, uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Syria. So it's, uh, and we have a campus in, in London. So it's a multi-campus university as well. Um, so that allows us some comparative thinking, comparative discussions. So um, I think it, it, it's in a stimulating context from, for a scholar in the South, uh, as far as Afghan University Institute for Educational Development is considered. Um, and so with that stimulation, um, I also pursue different research with my students. Uh, one of my students is uh, conceptualizing on the issue of public-private partnerships in Pakistan. The other doctoral student is uh, working on the issue of uh, um, education policy implementation. Um, then a teaching license, I just told you. Uh, some others are pursuing uh, educational leadership during COVID disruptions. Um, so these are some of the uh, things that um, I do. I can tell you more about the Institute if you want or any of the things that I just- Yeah, that's wonderful. I was looking at the website before we started the conversation and I and I saw those those different global connections and and you know you talked about some of those maybe south south connections and, and that's really wonderful to see and, and and a great opportunity to do comparative research that that you know, might not get talked about in in, in different journals and, and things like that like you were talking about sort of having to focus on a specific issue when you're in Edinburgh and it might be different than w in, in Pakistan. So, so that's wonderful to see. Um, I'm, I, can we maybe dive, dive more into your research? You know, I, I see you have a, a, a fairly recent article in uh, Globalization Society and Education, which is um, a wonderful journal. And, and you have a, a book, an edited, is an edited book volume coming out uh, fairly soon with University of Oxford Press. I'm interested in a lot of your areas of research and you have so many. So um, maybe you could kind of jump into those two first and then if we can see where we go from there. One of the beauty of working in the Southern context is the field is, is so open to a variety of challenges uh, that you can pursue many interests simultaneously. Um, 
So one of the probably limitation for a scholar in the North is you have to be very, very specific towards the field of research that you want to pursue. So uh, I think that's the advantage of working as a scholar in the, in the South. So I can you can pursue one of the areas that I'm currently interested in, which I haven't mentioned yet, and I'm still conceptualizing it, youth illiteracy and, and uh, adult literacy. So a lot of my research is also, or my areas of interest are also defined by the need of the context. Um, so all the areas that I've mentioned have emerged from my understanding of what my scholarship contribute to the to the existing need of research and scholarship within our context. Uh, so public-private partnership is the main instrument uh, that is being pursued by the state currently. Now, you for for understanding that you also have to understand that Pakistan is the country where uh, which has second highest out of school children population. So 25 million children are out of school. We, our adult literacy rate is also roughly around in 60s. So a lot of illiterate population and um, uh, a growing number of private schools. So around 30% of our institutions are in private schools. Now you, you look into all of these issues and then the government's preference for public-private partnerships and different donor preference for public-private partnership. I think any scholar who would be in my place would be curious to know why, for example, this particular policy is being pursued, um, given all of these things. And yet, uh, uh, interestingly, the government uh, committed even more uh, constitutionally. It said that uh, um, the, uh, the state will provide free and compulsory education from K-12, roughly from ages five to 16. Um, so huge commitment, but when you look at the delivery, rising privatization, rising public-private partnerships, so you tend to ask these kinds of questions. Um, and that makes me curious in, the, in those areas. Um, the other thing is, and then if you connect it to, okay, if that may be what, how those decisions are made of pursuing this pathway or that pathway, and then, then you get interested into what I wrote in my my article that you referred to in Global Association Societies and Education, which is actually asking about the spheres of authority. Uh, that um, if a state is supposed to have the maximum authority um, to determine its policy, whether that uh, that's an absolute authority or whether that authority is disjuncted by various pressures that a state has to keep. And so that's in, that's mainly the the, the kind of uh, question that I work with within that article. And so what I um, eventually said that states in the South, uh, borrowing Bourdieu's argument that uh, we have um, less national capital uh, and national capital is determined obviously by financial capital, but also your connection and everything. Um, so I said, uh, Pakistan, for example, is weak in national capital, uh, obviously financial capital. And so it has to or negotiate between different pressures. So if donors come with the education development budget, you have to listen to them. Um, and if there are demands from the global agencies like uh, UN or, or World Bank or IMF, you have to listen to them as well. And then any development. So a state ended up, instead of determining uh, the, the educational foci or the main pathway ended up negotiating between all of these spheres. 
uh, of, of pressures. And so uh, that's what I try and so I, I, I said that in our context, mainly we would be the state is doing more of the soft governance rather than hard governance, which is to assert itself through negotiation, through consultation, through using um, some uh, soft instruments rather than hard in, uh, hard instruments. So uh, those are the kinds of things that I dealt with. And so, and I also pursue that. One of the other uh, writing I did after that was about um, the role of uh, the network governance, um, which uh, is also a result of that, because if you look at the policy development process, and I've witnessed quite a lot uh, with the ministries, um, that the um, state is performing what is called now the network governance, where the role of consultants consultants is, is very prominent, but also uh, how, for example, the consultation is also used by the state itself as an, as an instrument of um, juxtaposing one pressure against another pressure and then negotiating its way forward. Um, so those are some of the areas that I pursued. Um, in 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 my, in my writing, I don't know whether I missed anything that you asked or no. That that was great. That was great. Yeah, I, it, I mean, it was kind of just a, a a question to sort of to see you know where where you were where you were thinking and some of your interests, and that was actually really wonderful. Yeah, and and one thing I just remember. So just to give you a sense of how I am into a variety of areas. So now you can see the connection of my interest in the public private partnership and globalization and donor, and how I see them connected. And then if you look at the youth literacy um, of, of the same context, so one bit of that is prioritization of education and public private partnership. But then you also look, for example, that adult illiteracy is, is huge. And so I became curious and I'm still curious. I'm still formulating my thoughts around how can, so the question that I'm pursuing uh, is how can we make our illiterate youth literate and employable at the same time. Because one of the reasons the youth is not pursuing this education or drop out, it has to do a lot with the prevailing poverty and the, and the need to support their families. Um, so they cannot discontinue from the employment, which is needed and their family, their own survival depends on that. So can we use their workplaces uh, as means for giving them some kind of some kind of education, um, uh, even functional education, which is connected with with the uh, um, with their work, but also literacy. So I, I don't have response. I only have question. Let's see whether I pursue that area enough uh, or, or or not. Um, but those are some of the thoughts that keep popping in my head. And uh, I, I'm, I'm blessed with my students. So one of the advantage of pursuing uh, multiple interests is also a, a huge variety of his, his students' body. So every year we are allocated to master's students, and I think our institute pay a lot of attention to uh, these students, allow time and effort. So, um, so uh, then, for example, last year I had interest in leadership and COVID. Uh, I asked two of my students to pursue that area. And they are pursuing that area of interest that also keep me updated. We have written, uh, we, are, we are planning to write something. And, and so this keeps these different 
um, interest alive in parallel. Yeah, that sounds great. I, I what I love about that is you're sort of still exploring and trying to find those answers. And I hope, you know, a couple of years from now, maybe when, when we see you again on the podcast or, or in, a, in a conference or whatever it is, you, you have the answer then, or you're presenting a paper or you're publishing a paper. And, and the other thing I love with that is that, you know, you're, you're connecting this with your students. So it's, it's, you're sort of sharing this knowledge or building out this, this experience. So uh, that's, that's just wonderful. Um, we're we're kind of coming to, to the end of the interview and uh, you keyed on in something that I'm quite interested in, and I, and I often ask my guest, what is sort of a, a message that we can give to people, you know, out, outside of, of Pakistan that maybe they, they don't realize or that it's, uh, that's maybe from your perspective, it's uh, uh, better to understand rather than sort of someone coming in and saying, hey, this is the problem or, or this is what, is what you need. Like, do, do you have a message or, or thought on, on maybe that kind of balancing act between sort of a local um, who has that perspective, um, and and sort of these international agencies that might be that might be coming. So out. some of the messages are hidden within the uh, within the uh, the work that I do or matters that I publish. But I think uh, um, one of the messages I would like to give to international community, especially development community, is that I don't know. Uh, I do. Do you, Ryan, have any sense of? Uh, five years capping of the projects or development activities. I think it has to do something with the five years length of the government uh, that any any government generally pursues four or five years of agenda and then the new administration comes in and then they define their um, development agenda. Um, so that's the only thought that I have. My, If that is the thinking, that I, I question that thinking because that may work for that that were that community. So, if, for example, USAID, which is very prominent in Pakistan, is working, uh, they come up with five years agenda. But sometimes these agendas are so different uh, that it just confuses the local context. So, uh, prior to I think Obama administration, uh, USAID investment was heavily towards uh, teachers' professional development in Pakistan. And with the change of administration, suddenly USAID started working, funding the reading program. And so one would wonder, what is this continuation, discontinuation? Um, so there are lots of disjunctures. And so my message to the, to the international community and development agencies is that allow their team on the ground to assess and and be flexible with these uh, timelines, with this agenda setting, negotiation. So there's a lot of rhetoric and generally before any development partner coming to the context, they generally talk to the government, they generally talk to people to assess what is needed. But what I've observed is they generally come with a set mind, even whatever you give, they sell what they have to sell. It's more like a marketing company. Uh, which is making, say, Pepsi-Cola or Coca-Cola or maybe Ariel or whatever, detergent powder or anything, they would sell it anyway. They would listen to you. They would do everything. But they, in the end, they would just find a way to sell you the thing that they want to sell. So that kind of an approach, I think, is detrimental to the very nature of the development work, these this junctures. So this discontinuation an agenda setting. So some of the development agencies are quite good. For example, JICA 
is is more engaging and and working all this. Sorry, I'm naming these, but uh, I I hope these agencies don't mind. But um, um, but even if you mind, this is this is kind of an advice uh, that if you learn from, for example, the the work of an agency that is appreciated by the local context, there is some lesson for you. But look, this is the kind of work, working together, flexibility, more thinking. Uh, so maybe you achieve a DLI development link indicator, uh, but you miss the objective. That's the kind of tragedy that is taking place. Uh, so that's my uh, agenda uh, uh, or, or request to the donor community. The second message is about the scholarship, the kind of research that is being carried out in the in the development context. Uh, if you remember, Kenneth King used to talk about, and still talks about this consultancy research. Um, and so if you look at, uh, in our context in Pakistan, a lot of research is basically consultancy research, um, which generally is a result of a TOR, which is already circulated, and a consultant who is a researcher respond to that TORs. So agenda setting of the research is in the hands of those uh, agencies that hire consultancy. Um, and they are often very, very micro. Uh, so we know we rely on funding agencies for our research as well, but generally many of, for example, ESRC in, in, in UK or some of the broader funding agencies whose, um, uh, whose assessment criteria is also determined by the scholars, they are more flexible, more open, but this consultancy research is generally very, very focused, very, very micro, and often in the form of impact studies or evaluation study. And so at best, it benefits that project, evaluates whether the project works or does not work. Um, and what it does harm is that it engages many useful, able local minds towards that consultancy research. Uh, because um, not every university, like my university, um, allow you to determine your, your agenda, provide you support. And I think I appreciate my institute, again, that it does that. It allows some internal funding to support your initial thoughts and ideas, which is not the case in many other private universities uh, and, um, and some independent scholars who generally end up becoming more of consultant. I see there are brilliant minds in Pakistan uh, who are working on consultancy research and, and this, but often, uh, so their mind is generally used uh, to serve that consultancy research agenda rather than forming an, an independent educational research agenda and then linking it with, with the policy advice. Um, and so that connection is not as strong as it is supposed to be in the, in the research policy action arena. We are making one effort. I told you about teaching license. We are we tried to uh, do an independent analysis, policy dialogue, and everything. So our effort on teaching license wasn't sponsored by any uh, sponsoring agency. It is a it is a generally uh, the work uh, that university allowed me to carry out. And so we are working with the ministries. We are working with uh, teachers union. We are working with uh, so it allows you the flexibility which otherwise you won't have the time. So I worked with different stakeholders and now even with the, uh, with the final white paper, 
we are setting it into the public domain by saying, well, look, this is our best advice at the moment. But we are still open and you can look at it. Um, we are happy to give you more advice, more evidence, more support, but generally it's, it's up to you. So um, that advice to the research community, um, to our national government, um, is just a place uh, that please pay attention to the research uh, and allow some funds, national funds, to carry out those research as well. Um, I think that's kind of my message uh, at the moment. I don't know whether I make uh, um, very concrete messaging, but I think uh, if people can, can listen to me and uh, interact with my thoughts, uh, they might get the message out of it. Yeah. No, I think so. That was that was wonderful. You know, a, a little bit of a critique on on sort of the international community and, and maybe some some domestic advice as well. So you you left a, a lot for us to sort of uh, ponder as we end this podcast and and definitely link to your work if people want to go read more about it. And and hopefully we'll see you at other uh, events and and, uh, and organizations and things like that. In the Just future. to interrupt you, I think I I should also appreciate this uh, KIX initiative because that's also allowing, uh, so I participated in the webinar which resulted in this podcast where I think one scholar from uh, Europe, one scholar from uh, UK, the other one from Egypt and myself, I think there was a lot of interaction and we were talking about Paulo Freire and I think how it it affects in different contexts. I think those are the kinds of things that are, are very important and I think I should appreciate this uh, KIX initiative and I think if, if it is pursued, it would allow more of such uh, interactive discussion, discourse, and one thing, you know, one thing leads to the other. So that thing led to this, this might lead to, lead to some other thing. And those are the organic things that uh, we need to, uh, to support more. Sorry, I, I cut your No, no. I think that's an important one. Absolutely, that is important, you know, and, and we definitely appreciate it. And you're right, this capacity building of, you know, you meet someone here or you do this event and, and it goes somewhere else. And, and that's how we sort of create those, those different synergies, I think. So I really, I, I do agree with you there. So, all right, well, well thank you for joining me today and uh, we'll, have to, we'll have to cross paths again, hopefully. Hopefully, thank you. And this concludes our Kix EAP podcast, which is released every first Wednesday of the month. Of course, the opinions expressed on the Kix EAP podcast are solely those of the host and the guest. The Kix EAP podcast is made possible by Kix, which stands for Knowledge and Innovation Exchange. Kix is an initiative of the Global Partnership for Education. Globally, Kix is administered by the International Development Research Center in Canada. NORAG in Geneva hosts one of the four regional hubs of Kix. Find us on the NORAG or GPE Kix websites. You can subscribe to the Kix EAP podcast, newsletter, and webinar series, and also learn about Kix global or regional projects. Additionally, you can subscribe directly on Spotify or SoundCloud to receive notifications of the new monthly podcast episodes. Thanks for listening.